You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. An Iranian domestic spyware campaign has been reported. It's most interested in ethnic Kurds. A bogus cryptocurrency wallet site's been taken down. F-Secure warns of a widespread firmware problem that could be exploited for cold boot attacks. The blue-born Bluetooth bugs are apparently still out there. Tech support scam ads have been taken down. Policies for election security continue to evolve. And Facebook's founder offers some thoughts on how his platform can save democracy. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, September 13th, 2018. Checkpoint reports finding an Iranian domestic spyware campaign. Domestic Kitten, as some are calling it for now, because Iranian threat actors get names inspired by Persian cats, appears to be targeting ethnic Kurds and Turks. It's also prospecting potential adherents of or recruits to ISIS. The Islamic State, remember, is no friend of the Islamic Republic. The former is Sunni, the latter Shiite. Users are baited into downloading the spyware with an offer to install an app likely to be of interest to them. According to the Times of Israel, Kurdish targets were prospected with a spoofed version of ANF, a Kurdish news agency. ISIS prospects were offered jihad-themed wallpaper for their device. Kurdistan 24 reports that the data exfiltrated by the spyware included contact lists, call records, SMS messages, browser history, bookmarks, photos, and geolocation. It may also have been able to capture local voice recordings. Checkpoint doesn't directly attribute the campaign to the Islamic Republic, but opposition Kurdish leaders aren't reticent at all about doing so. The surveillance campaign coincides with a fresh wave of measures Tehran is taking against unrest among its Kurdish citizens. Flashpoint has discovered a malicious website that spoofs the Jax cryptocurrency wallet site. The bogus site has been taken down. Its goal was looting wallets. Cloudflare took the copycat site down. Flashpoint points out that this is essentially a social engineering attack and doesn't represent any exploitation of any vulnerabilities in the Jax site itself. Once the malicious files are installed on a victim's device, they'll watch the clipboard for wallet addresses, which are then swapped for an address belonging to a wallet controlled by the attacker. Cryptocurrencies continue to be off the highs they reached late last year, as some realistic skepticism about speculating in altcoin begins to sink in. There is one exception. Quartz reports that Dogecoin, the cryptocurrency that originated as a literal joke and got away from the jokesters, is still soaring. Organizations are hit with a barrage of marketing messages. 
promising the one true solution to all of your cybersecurity fears. And to be fair, one of the ways we pay the bills here is by sharing some of those advertiser messages with you. Josh Mayfield is Director of Security Strategy at Absolute Software, and he notes the contrast between vendor and security professional messages and emphasizes the importance of staying focused. Uh, If you're an IT or an IT security professional, you are struggling to keep up. You want to be an enabler for your business and help it proceed up and to the right. Uh, However, from the vendor and the security ecosystem, the other direction is more troubling, where it is a lot of doom and gloom and and a lot of fear-mongering. And I don't mean that in a real negative sense, but there's this anticipation of fear, whereas on the uh, the user side, the IT professional and security professional, oftentimes they have uh, ambition toward hope and and a utopia that they're trying to strive for. And so uh, that interferes uh, sometimes with the way they perceive a given problem. There's an ever-growing need for greater cybersecurity. And what I find is that when organizations are just more disciplined and focused on on what needs to be done, they can actually achieve a lot more than than chasing this or chasing that. So let's explore that some. I mean, take us through what what sorts of things do you recommend? The real basis of my shtick, I guess, out there is to try to reinvigorate this notion of the foundations, of making certain that our cyber hygiene is as best as it can be. Growing up, uh, my father and grandfather had this saying of, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm. And I think a lot of the, the malware myopia is, uh, really stems from this, um, this hair-trigger patellar reflex that we have with the looming threats that are out there and new ones popping onto the scene every day. And it's so easy to shift our focus over there. But a lot of that can be avoided. Uh, 99% of successful attacks target specific vulnerabilities that could have been mitigated beforehand. And so if we keep focusing on the latest threat actor out there and the latest malware trend, uh, we could actually uh, be misdirected where we're looking at one thing and and get flanked on the side, which we could have fortified. Yeah. How much of this in your estimation is, uh, you know, this notion that I don't have to have a completely uh, impenetrable barrier, but uh, I just have to be less attractive than the, the next person down the street? That's right. Uh, your organization doesn't have to be Fort Knox, and it doesn't have to be impenetrable, to your point. Uh, it just needs to, th- this is a probabilistic exercise. We just need to lower the probability. We need to compress the attack surface. It will never go to zero. We will never get rid of all potential threats. You have something that attackers want, information. So they're going to deploy all that human ingenuity to get to it. But we can reduce their opportunity uh, for that to occur. Uh, natural disasters in our current world are still just as prevalent as they've been in human history, but we've been able to mitigate the human catastrophes uh, that stem from natural disasters. We can take the same approach to our cybersecurity, and we can reduce the effects. We can reduce the opportunity uh, for fallout instead of uh, trying to to chase things down once they've already hit landfall. I think... The things that are going to require a lot of attention is the heterogeneity of everything. Once upon a time, to be a user was to be an an inside-the-walls employee. To To be accessing data meant you were going through a Windows machine, and the applications you used meant you were logging into 
CA or SAP or an Oracle system. And this was just commonplace. But with the explosion of cloud applications, cloud infrastructure, virtualization containers, and the heterogeneity of what we're trying to support, and even down to the hardware of do you use a Mac, do you use a Windows PC, do you use Dell or HP, mm. all of these aspects really, um, th that's what it comes down to. You have to orchestrate all of this heterogeneity. And that's the main thing I think we're going to have to get our hands around is normalizing all that out there that is not Standard. That's Josh Mayfield from Absolute Software. F-Secure has found a firmware vulnerability that affects most laptops and desktops. It enables a variety of cold boot attack that exposes encryption keys and other sensitive information. It's a proof of concept and not apparently something being exploited in the wild. One expects the device makers to address the issue as they're able. Armis reminds everyone that the Blueborn Bluetooth bugs, a set of nine bugs, is still out there. A year after its disclosure, patches for Blueborn are available, but users have lagged in applying them. About two billion devices remain vulnerable, Armis estimates. Microsoft has purged some 3,000 ads for dodgy tech support services that had appeared in association with Redmond's TechNet. Many of them were swiftly replaced in altered form, which suggests the difficulties even the most straightforward and uncontroversial forms of content moderation face. Such moderation will become even more important if the copyright protection measures enacted yesterday by the EU have their expected effect. U.S. President Trump yesterday signed an executive order setting up a process whereby election interference by foreign actors would trigger sanctions. Interference covered by the order includes both hacking and propaganda, the U.S. Congress continues to work on its own measures for dealing with election security. There are at least three bills pending before the Senate, and the House has more than one of its own under consideration. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, stung by criticism of the centralizing tendencies of Facebook and the success various actors have had in using it for their political purposes, has just published a long account of how he proposes to go about fixing things. He follows, to a significant extent, the line expressed by Facebook CEO Sandberg at the Senate hearings last week. The key to making things better is solve the problem of inauthenticity by requiring users to be themselves. That is, really be themselves, be who they represent themselves to be. He also thinks that those centralizing tendencies aren't a bad thing, and here he may find a sympathetic audience. Facebook can do a better job of making things better if it's not broken up and if it gets to hang on to WhatsApp and Instagram. That way, if it finds a particular bad actor in one place, it can remove that bad actor from the others. This is unlikely to mollify those in Congress thinking about asking for antitrust action. He also defended Facebook's taking of political ads as a moral rather than a commercial consideration, Ad buys are an important way in which people engage in political discourse, and he's loath to impede free speech. This is unlikely to mollify critics that Facebook's fact-checkers tend to display an unseemly and unacknowledged set of biases. Again, in fairness to Facebook, content moderation is an inherently difficult task, even with considerable resources and the best of intentions. Even Soviet power, to take a historical example, couldn't suppress Samizdat, the copying and distribution of literature, banned by the state. Zuckerberg's essay is posted, where else? On Facebook. 
Read the whole thing, but know that it's 3,200 words long. It reads a bit like an essay by a disillusioned Candide. Mr. Zuckerberg says that, quote, One of the important lessons I've learned is that when you build services that connect billions of people across countries and cultures, you're going to see all of the good humanity is capable of, and you're also going to see people try to abuse those services in every way possible. End quote. You said it, brother. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, welcome back. Uh, We saw some interesting news come by uh, that the District Court of Appeals in Florida has some decisions out about warrantless use of stingrays. Can you unpack it for us? What's going on here? Sure. So this is a case at the uh, Florida Appeals Court level. Uh, So it's a state court case in Florida, and the state of Florida ended up catching a murderer, a first-degree murderer, partially based on evidence obtained through a cell site simulator or a stingray device. Uh, The murderer sought to suppress that evidence, which was not the only piece of evidence in in the case, but one of the key pieces of evidence. And uh, the district court did uh, suppress that evidence. Government appealed to... Um, the appellate court and the appellate court upheld that motion to dismiss, and they did so 
talking about the privacy concerns inherent in cell site simulators. Um, we've seen other cases on this subject. In Maryland, uh, we had a state court case that held that the government does need to obtain a warrant before using a Stingray, de- a stingray device uh, or cell site simulator. Um, what's interesting to me is the reasoning in this case. Uh, it's really a, a fascinating decision, but the judge goes over a number of different relevant legal doctrines that seem to imply that these types of simulators are offensive to our notions of Fourth Amendment privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the decision, he talks about how courts have held the government can't use technology to view information not visible to the naked eye, you know, a, a longstanding Supreme Court precedent. They can't attach a device to property to monitor your location. That's from a very famous case, United States v. Jones from 2012. They can't search a cell phone in your possession without a warrant. That's Riley v. California, 2014, and they get can't get real-time location information from a cellular care, uh, carrier. That's from um, United States v. Carpenter, which was decided this year. And what they're saying is, to a certain extent, a cell site simulator does all of those things. Hmm. Uh, and so it would be incongruent to say that the government doesn't need a warrant to use this device when that device encapsulates a bunch of these other scenarios where the Supreme Court has declared that we do need a warrant. And part of it is just the extent of the information that's being revealed. This isn't a simple third-party records case where, you know, your phone calls are tracked because the telecommunications company wants to keep billing records. I mean, as the judge says, I mean, this is the government surreptitiously intercepting a signal that the user intends to send to their cell phone carrier, and it intercepts that same device intercepts all different types of other private data. And based on an extensive record of Supreme Court cases, we know that this um, runs afoul of many Fourth Amendment principles. Uh, and it's it's an interesting that the decision from Carpenter, which held that the government needs a warrant to obtain cell site location information, is already trickling down to uh, state court decisions in the area of digital privacy. Um, these things happen quickly. So how does this inform what law enforcement may do going forward from here? So obviously, for now, the decision only applies in the state of Florida. Um, So at this point, it's still a state-by-state issue. As I said, in Maryland, we've determined that the government needs a warrant. There are other ways that the government could use these devices without getting a warrant if they're able to justify it under another warrant exception. So, for example, if there were exigent circumstances or some sort of threat to public safety, I think the government could still justify um, using these devices uh, to conduct searches without running afoul of the Fourth Amendment, even in the absence of a warrant. But I think we're starting to see at least a mini consensus emerge that because of the threat these devices are to personal privacy and digital privacy, the government is going to have to go through the formal process of going in front of a judge, making the case that they're going to find evidence that's relevant to an ongoing criminal investigation and Uh, get a warrant to do the surveillance work. And, you know, that's how it works with most forms of of surveillance. You have to get a warrant to wiretap. You have to get a warrant to enter a person's house, I think, uh, because of the invasiveness of this type of search, this type of device. It makes sense that a similar uh, warrant requirement would, would be the case here. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. 
for links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.